0: When Jenny and I were young and we didn't have children, we volunteered in children's ministries. So we served in the nursery and in school age areas uh, on Sunday mornings. And then we turned around and did that again on Wednesday nights. Um, we just couldn't get enough kids, even though we didn't have kids of our own. Um, and Sunday mornings for us were long. Okay. So the church that we were a part of at that time and, and had two services and each service was an hour and 45 minutes okay with about a 20 minute break in between and so you're doing children's ministries two of those you know two services by the time you get to sunday afternoon you're tired jenny was tired i was tired and the other young adults in the church decided that they were going to start a small group and guess what night of the week they wanted to have that small group sunday nights Sunday nights. Jenny was tired. I was tired. Sunday nights are what Jenny used to plan for her lesson plans. And then guess what that small group wanted to study? They wanted to study Ray Vanderlands, walk through the Bible, you know, holiness, you know, tour of the Bible land. I had an BA in Bible and theology. I had an MA in church history. I had a master divinity. I did not need another tour of the Bible or the Holy Land. But Jenny and I went, and we went to the small group anyway, and we committed, and we stayed. And out of that group, we got to know another couple named Holly and Burley. I'm not sure why it was Holly and Burley and Max and Jenny, but that's just how it was. And Jenny and Holly hit it off, which meant that Burley and I had to figure it out. (laughs) Preach. Jenny and Holly hit it off, which meant that Burley and I had to figure it out. And if I can be honest for a moment, I didn't think it would work because there was a Sunday evening small group, the women are in the kitchen, one of the guys is grilling out in the backyard, there's this giant red oak, California red oak tree sprawling over everything and the men are throwing a ball around and every time the ball comes to me, I cannot catch the ball. I fumble the ball, I drop the ball, the ball goes over my head, it goes past me, and Burley says to me, can you not catch? And in that moment, all of the, I'm not a sport guy, I am not a real man, I, like all of this stuff comes to the surface, right? And I'm scared to death, I'm like, this has got to work, but I don't think this can work. What he did was he stopped. He came over to me and he goes, "Well, let me show you how." And we started getting together and we started having hanging out together and we became good friends. Friendship requires that we make and keep promises. Even though we will break them, even though we will need forgiveness, friendship requires that we make and keep promises we need to pick some people in life that we cling to and that we make promises to. Um, you know you have committed what I would call close friendships when their kids call you aunt and uncle and your kids call them aunt and uncle even though you're not biologically related. That's kind of a measuring stick of that. People like to say that you know, you know who's a friend by who shows up to help you move, but a true friend will help you move a body. Amen? <laughs> right. I'm kidding. Committed committed, committed friendships, though, in America these days are struggling. In the year 2010, Christian college presidents, these are presidents of Asbury University, Wheaton College, Taylor, Taylor University, Seattle Pacific. In 2010, Christian college presidents were asked, what has changed the most about young people entering college? You know what their number one answer was? Quote, young adults today are far less willing to commit to anything, including each other. That was in 2010. Uh, And I would add, it's not just young adults, it's all of us are struggling in this regard. Uh, Sociologists and psychologists tell us that we need anywhere from two to five to three to three to six close friends. In other words, not many but just enough to matter. Um, And the thing that sets those friendships apart from all of the others is the type of commitment involved, the promises that we make and keep. And this type of friendship isn't new. Um, It's something that we humans have been doing a long time, and it's what we see between two women on the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi. So I want to read this passage, and then I want to walk through it together. Ruth chapter one, and just hear the scripture. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man went from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, he left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back. Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself, raised his fist against me and again they wept together and orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye but ruth ruth clung tightly to naomi look naomi said to her your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods you should do the same but ruth replied don't ask me to leave you and turn back wherever you go i'll go wherever you live i'll live your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I ever allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So this takes place at the time of the judges. Um, An interesting time in Israel's history, a time where scripture says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, There's regional instability. Greece and Egypt are in decline. There's lots of earthquakes and famines and uncertainty. Bethlehem, which is known as the house of bread, has come up dry. There's not enough rain. There's no crops. It's economic havoc. And so Elimelech decides to go to Moab. Now, this is weird. Moab's origins are found in Genesis 19, Lot's daughter, an act of incest. And so Genesis to, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, those books have lots of rules about the Moabites. If it has anything to do with Moab, the answer is no. Hey, I met this girl. She's from the tribe of Moab, and I think we could... No. You know, my flock is doing okay, but there's this guy across the hill, and he's got a flock, and I think if, you know, but he's a Moabite. No. Like, everything about Moab is no. Where does Elimelech go? Moab. He goes to Moab. Okay? Moab is where David hides his parents from Saul. It's where Elimelech flees the famine. And while there, he dies, (laughs) and the sons die. So Naomi has lost both her husband and her sons, and that's a problem. If your husband died, you relied upon your sons for financial support, and if your sons couldn't support you, you would sell yourself into slavery or prostitution. Not very good options. And Leviticus has rules for preventing this about widows being able to glean in the fields and all this kind of stuff. But um, Naomi is likely in her mid-40s, and her daughters are likely in their mid-20s when all of this takes place. So Ruth decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem. She's going to go back to Judah. And that's a lot of risk. Um Another thing that's going on, ancient Near Eastern peoples had a big premium on uh, being gathered with your people after death. This is why when the Israelites are going back to their homeland after being rescued out of slavery from Egypt, they carry the bones of Joseph with them. So Naomi likely has the bones of her husband and the bones of her sons on this journey back to Bethlehem where she's going. Um, And so there's this interchange that plays out. Why should you go on with me? Naomi is logical and practical with her two daughters-in-law, okay? Go back to your, you know, go back to your clan. Go back to your parents. Go back to your families. Marry again. That's what's in your interest. I don't have any husband. I don't have any sons. I don't have any land. I don't have any future. I don't have, there's nothing for you tied to me right? Orpah chooses to go back, but Ruth clings to Naomi. And there's four key words that keep coming up in this first chapter of Ruth. Return, go, cling, and kindness. Return, go, cling, and kindness. And Ruth clings to Naomi. It's this intense commitment. She says, only death will separate us. Now, Ruth has known Naomi as her mother-in-law for nearly 10 years. She was probably married as a teenager. And Ruth shows Naomi not just this cling part, but a real kindness. Uh, The Hebrew word here is chesed. It's a deep and abiding loyalty and commitment in a relationship, a chesed commitment. Uh, It often refers to an act performed by someone in real and desperate need. Um, It's performed for a weaker person by a stronger person, and it's voluntary. It's generous. It's not obligated. Chesed is what God shows his people, and Ruth is showing this to Naomi. Uh, This kind of commitment was sung in a song at Jenny and I's wedding, right? Uh, in what was it, 1990? A long time ago. So this lady with a big vibrato gets up there, "Wherever you go," you know, and boom, you know, wowed the thing, you know. But there's an amazing thing that is happening here in Ruth's pledge to Naomi. This is a true friend, a committed friend, a covenant friend, through thick and thin. I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I am with you, period. And their commitment pays off in spades. As we go through the book of Ruth, Ruth meets this somewhat older guy named Boaz, who kind of lets her glean in his fields. And then Boaz marries her. And Boaz is the great-grandfather of guess who? David, the shepherd boy becomes king of Israel. So David, just like his great-grandmother, Ruth, David develops his own close friendship with a young man named Jonathan. Um, This is Ruth again. Don't ask me to leave you and go back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So her great-grandson, David, develops this brotherhood-type friendship with another young man named Jonathan, and they become fast and close friends. You need to know that Jonathan's father is Saul, who wants to kill David. So David and Jonathan have this moment where David's like, your dad's trying to kill me. I'm telling you, your dad's out to get me. And Jonathan's like, no, that would never happen. Like, my dad is not like that at all. Like, you're, you're reading into the situation. So they, they come up with this way to test Saul to see if they can provoke him to get angry at David. And sure enough, Saul gets so mad he throws a spear at him, and David barely makes it out of the room. So then later on, they're meeting in secret. And this is what's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Both of them, David and Jonathan, were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn, what? Loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. And later on, David cares for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, I can never say his name, (laughs) who, when he was a little kid, his nurse had to flee uh, for their lives and his nurse dropped him when he was like one year old and he became permanently disabled and david cares for this son of his best friend the rest of his lives now i i want to kind of pause and and step out for a moment and talk about some things that we americans tend to do we americans tend to oversexualize everything we do and so we'll go back onto the pages of scripture and we'll read into things into passages and we'll say well David and Jonathan were not just friends, they were also lovers. And I want to say to you that that's probably taking the stuff that we talk about and focus on a lot in America and put it, putting it on the text. So let the text be the text. One of the things that makes Americans kind of weird in the long arc of human history is the way that we oversexualize everything. In that way, we're a lot like the Romans. <laughs> but um, there are close friendships in virtually every society in every generation and every century where they're just good friends and not lovers. So if you don't believe me, just read through the diaries of these young men who served together in the trenches of World War I. The language that they talk about those relationships and those strong bonds, they're talking about friends, a kind of loyalty, friendship, I'm with you no matter what. We're not lovers, we're just friends, okay? So I wanna point that out. So in light of what we see in Ruth, And Naomi, in light of what we see in David and Jonathan, let me ask a couple of questions. Who who do I cling to? Who do you cling to? And who has clung to you? Who do you you cling to and who has clung to you other than a spouse? And then secondly, would you be willing to take the next step with someone? Um, And I want to urge you to think in terms of categories. Like there's friends here that live here there's friends that live far away what does that look like and how is it different there's people in the church family people outside the church family what does that look like and how is that different okay but would you be willing to take a step toward a more covenant type of friendship like that we see in ruth and naomi or david and jonathan and what might that be okay so I always try to have these things be practical about what does Scripture say, and what do we make? How do we make sense of that? So, how can we take this home? First and foremost, uh, verbalize it. Verbalize it, Uh, like Ruth and Naomi, or David and Jonathan. I'm committed to you. I'm making a commitment to you through thick and thin. I'm not going to run away, bail, or dump you just because I get mad, or offended, or hurt. students have a leg up on us kids have a leg up on us in this sense a kid will be like i want you to meet my best friend daryl and my other best friend daryl like they can have two or three or five friend best friends and it's like no problem but we grown-ups are like no it can only be one who made up that rule it's <laughs> a silly rule okay so kids have a leg up on us because they've got room for that and the kids will be the beautiful awkwardness they'll just ask will you be my best friend like kids will just ask this statement like we grown-ups are scared of that aren't we because we've been hurt enough times we don't want to risk being told no or being risk the risk of rejection but to love is to risk i can't eliminate the risk for you and me and trust me i feel the like That moment in that backyard when I wasn't catching those balls. Like, (laughs) this feels really risky and unsafe. Okay, I get it. I've been there. So verbalize it. Verbalize it. Secondly, schedule and keep regular FaceTime. Friendships require time, commitment, and trust in person. Um, And the consistent ways that we garner trust are things like we're dependable. In other words, we return calls or we show up when we're supposed to show up. We're kind. In other words, we have grace for the other person. Um, One of the things, one of the ways this plays out in American relationships right now is um, I'm friends with Gary. So I expect Gary to do X. Gary lets me down. So Gary, you stink as a human being. And I condemn Gary and I, you know, paint this picture. One of the ways that we can walk in the way of Jesus is by being gracious with one another because God's been gracious to us. Um, Again, qualifier here, trust is always earned, right? So you earn trust, okay? But number three, expect conflict. If I can say anything about friendship, it's going to be like marriage or any other relationship. There's going to be conflict. If you've got more than one person, you've got conflict. Um, For those of you that know me well, you know I love Star Trek. Star Trek gets so many things wrong, but also so many things right, but he gets so many things wrong. And one of the things that Gene Roddenberry got wrong about Star Trek was his insistence that on the, on the bridge crew of a starship, there would be no conflict among the officers. And every single actor who has acted in Star Trek series has been like, this is bunk. This is not humanity. Like, it doesn't work this way at all. We've got to have conflict. Not only does it make for good story, it's just reality. <laughs> like, and so expect conflict. Expect conflict. And then one kind of measuring test for this that I found over the years is what I call the refrigerator test. Who in your life has the ability to walk into your home, open the fridge, and eat anything without asking permission first? (laughs) Chances are that's a decent friend. If they can walk into your house, open your fridge, and they don't need to ask permission... So to go back a long time ago to the 1990s when Holly and Burley and Max and Jenny were getting together before any of us had kids, um, Holly is kind of a stick high metabolism like your pastor. So one of the upsides to this is that, you know, we can be a stick our whole lives. One of the big downsides to that is you just run out of fuel. Like several times a day, like the whole, whole, your engine's like, we are shutting down emergency power, like it just, everything shuts down, and so you can get really hangry, cranky, tired, you can have a look on your face that's, that makes people think you want to eat young people, like it's just bad, okay, and so, so Holly kept little Debbie snack cakes in a cupboard, And at certain points in the evening when it had gone long because Burley and Jenny just wanted to talk and talk and talk and play more games and talk and talk and talk. And it's like 11, 11.30, and I last ate at 5.30. (laughs) She would just look at me and say, Max, do you need a snack? And that was my cue. Get up from my seat, go to the cabinet, and get a little Debbie snack cake, and everything will be okay, okay? So again, the refrigerator test is a good kind of measuring stick for that. Uh, two years ago, I lent out my saxophone to Holly's youngest son, who's been learning to play lots of different instruments. They live in Indianapolis now. I fully in my mind thought, "Yeah, this is a loan, but really it's a gift. I'm never going to see that saxophone again. And early in the summer, my therapist really challenged me and was like, you need to have a hobby. This has got to happen. I'm ordering you. You have to do this. And I'm like, okay, fine. And when I heard there was a community band starting up, I was like, well, boom. Okay, I'll pick that as a hobby. And so I reached out to Holly to go, hey, is Nathan still using the saxophone? And, you know, if he is, it's great. I'll, you know, figure, I was just thinking I might join this band. This is what she said, Max Vanderpool, you are joining that band. I am bringing your saxophone down when we bring our daughter to Asbury, and you are going to do this. There's no, qu- F- no questions. If you're there, like, is that not a good friend? Yeah. There it is, committed friendship. So I want to suggest to you that in this room and in your life today are potential Ruth and Naomi's, our potential David and Jonathan's, our potential Holly and Burley's. And I want to suggest to you that maybe this is a good window and a good season to take the first step. This is what Justin Early writes in his book, Made for People. The upside of this is that like at a high school dance, Most of us are sitting around waiting to be asked. When you get the bravery to be the one to ask, you'll find that everyone else has been dying to say yes. Friendships require that we make and keep promises, even though we'll break them and even though we'll need forgiveness. But friendship requires that step, that level of commitment, I'm with you through thick and thin. I want to ask our musicians to make their way up front. And I'm going to read this passage from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, which has been part of the um, verse for friendship for last month in G-Town. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12